0: Today we're going to be in Luke, chapter 21, starting with verse 12. So last week we had our Christmas message that started out with the birth of Christ, and then we kind of fast-forwarded to Luke 21 and uh, spoke about some things and some signs that would precede his return. The blessed hope that we as believers look forward to. Today, on the eve of yet another year, 2007, we'll be covering the eve of Jesus' resurrection. He's shortly thereafter. Uh, He's going to be going to the cross, and we're going to hear him discuss the eve of his return in power and glory, Uh, make sure that the disciples understand the difference between those two events. Uh, In verses 8 through 11 that we covered last week, what we mainly covered in the scripture, if you weren't here, was the frequency and intensity of the following events prior to Jesus' return. The end of the world that the secular people say, oh no, it's the end of the world, revelation, but we know it really is a new beginning. We don't live in fear about the end of the world because uh, what people think that is, we know that God will make a new heavens and a new earth. He'll, he'll complete you know the whole cycle of rebellion and sin. It'll be washed away. It'll be a, a brand new glorious creation where we live for eternity with him if we're in Christ. So really, to us, it's, it's a good thing. But we saw last week the false messiahs, the false prophets, uh, the wars, the ethnic cleansings, the earthquakes famines, and we also covered pestilences predicted by Jesus. And again, we said prior that these things have always existed, but now we see the, uh, we we went into a little bit more detail about each subject, and we see the frequency and intensity, and we gave examples of that. Sort of like a woman who's going to deliver a baby, uh, as it gets closer to the time to deliver, you have the birth pangs, and uh, you know, a few few months into the uh, pregnancy, you have the false labor, the Braxton Hicks contractions. But as it gets closer to that delivery date, the, uh, the pangs come with more intensity, they're more painful, and they become more frequently until the baby is delivered. So starting with verse 12, it says, but before all these things, they will lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Therefore settle in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer for, I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will send some of you to your death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair on your head shall be lost in your patience, possess your souls. Well, again, prior to Jesus' return, he says to his followers basically that those of you that are called by my name, my followers, will be persecuted. And you can see the persecutions all through history, not that we're to wear them as a badge of honor or to say, well, somebody struck us, we have to strike back. It's not about that. Jesus made that clear. But it's a fact. God's people will be persecuted. Starting with uh, with Christianity, the, you had the five basic branches of Judaism at the time, and we talked about the different doctrines of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the Zealots, okay? The, the you know the insurrectionists, the Essenes, which were more the cloistered people, and the Herods, which were kind of whatever suited them. They were sort of uh, they were Jewish people when they needed to be, but they were mostly the politicians at the time. And then you had the Christians who came, and they were understood as a Jewish, a Jewish sect. Most people don't realize that it came out of Judaism. Uh, But it wasn't well received in the beginning, and there was some persecution there. And then you had the Roman Empire uh, under Nero. Most people are familiar with the Nero persecutions, Domitian, Diocletian, and Galerius persecutions in the first few centuries there. And then you had, uh, in the 7th century, the Islamic expansion. The followers of Muhammad felt that the Jews and the Christians should receive Muhammad as the final prophet, So there were some persecutions as well under the Umayyads, the Abbasids, and the Ottomans. Some of you may have heard of the Turks. And then the established church at the time in Europe for many centuries, uh, they became established. People who wanted to read their Bible were persecuted. Uh, People who tried to translate the Bible into the vernacular, it was considered illegal. It was heresy. You had to go through the church to understand God's word. And it's still going on around us today, but most of us don't notice it. Because we have freedom in religion, uh, of religion in the United States and in Europe, but remember, the United States and Europe only comprise only about 20% of the Earth's population. Uh, but we, we enjoy uh, freedom of religion in this country. But there's a lot of persecution among Christians in different, you know, as, as we speak. Okay, so in verse 13, he says, "But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. The word of God had to reach everyone. So Jesus wanted even among persecution." his followers to speak forth the gospel and give that testimony to the, maybe the, the royal courts, you know, the, the monarchies. Paul went before King Agrippa and Governor Festus and Emperor Nero. The Book of Acts speaks about many Christians who went before the royal courts and gave a ca- occasion to testimony, like Jesus says here. And many will say, well, what good did it do? Nero is a very interesting character. If you follow Emperor the, you know, Nero, Caesar, from his inception he actually started out as a good emperor he did a lot of great things for rome and then all of a sudden he went kind of berserk at some point in his life and from then on he started persecuting the christians he it's believed he set the fire to rome and blamed it on them he did a lot of bizarre things afterwards but the point in history that we can really pinpoint to that too is when paul went before nero the bible doesn't speak about what paul actually said to nero but if you look at his track record with the other uh, uh, monarchies and, and rulers, uh, you know that he probably laid a very heavy witness on Nero, but Nero obviously rejected that. The Bible speaks about, we covered a scripture before about if a, a demon goes out of a man, right? And, and the man is able to sweep himself up and clean everything up and, and the demon goes to find another host and doesn't find it. He brings back seven more demons worse than himself. And he sees that the man's all kind of cleaned up. And they enter the man, and it says his last state was worse than the first state before the original demon left. And that's a picture of people who, who dabble with spiritual things. They dabble, they dabble, they kind of try to get their life right a little bit. They, they look at God's word a little bit and clean up a little bit, and then they, they keep going back and forth, and eventually they're solidified in that state when they don't receive, uh, receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So the, the man who's demon-possessed later is in a far worse state than the beginning. And that looks like what happened with Nero. He just went from a, a kind of sane person to somebody who was out of his mind and demonic. But the word of God has two effects. The first effect is regeneration. Romans 10:17. You hear the word of God. you you. say to you, I remember when I first started hearing the word of God, it's like there was something going on inside of me. I'm like, wow, I've always craved this, but I didn't realize this is what I was looking for. And I try to fill it with all kinds of other things and it didn't work. But once I, I got the word of God in my soul, it, it drank it up, and I had to get more. So you have that first effect is the regeneration effect. The second effect is the hardening against God. Uh, Star Wars had a great term, turning to the dark side. You know the things of God. You know what God has to offer. You know it's right. You know you need it. But you, you, go, you dabble. You go back and forth. And then eventually you, you turn to the dark side. And you're solidified in that state. Pharaoh. Was shown a lot of great uh, miracles from God, from the God of Moses and Aaron, and he he was was he kind of let them do what they wanted to, and then he hardened his heart, and he kept going back and forth, and then eventually the Bible says God hardened his heart. He solidified him in that state, and it was that was the end. Uh, Second Chronicles talks about how. The, the prophets were sent to Israel over and over and over again and gave them so many chances. And then it says they, they rejected the prophets and rejected them and God said until there was no more remedy. See, that's a frightening place to be. A frightening place to be. Uh, Isaiah 55, 10 through 11 is a great scripture. Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. It says, For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there but water the earth and make it Bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. God compares the, the, the precipitation cycles to his word. The precipitation cycle is done so that it can water the ground and, and you know, fertilize the ecosystem and bring forth life. And he said, my word does the same thing. When my word goes forth, it has a, an effect on people. And, and there's going to be two effects. I believe this with all my heart. It's either going to, you're either going to say, yeah, this is it. This is, it's, I'm re-, it's going to regenerate you. Or you're going to say, you're going to keep pushing against it and pushing against it. And it's going to seal your fate. So when you go before judgment, you have no excuse. God's going to say, he's going to roll back the videotape and say, look at all these times that I tried to reach you and you rejected me. So you have no excuse. God's a fair God. I want to read um, something from a Roman historian. It's brief. It's from Tacitus. He's a first century Roman historian. And he speaks about, in Tacitus Annals 15.44, he speaks about the Christians and what happened to them and their persecutions. Because persecution is is a sub-theme of today's uh, sermon. He says, in their deaths they were made the subjects of sport, for they were wrapped in the hides of wild beasts and torn to pieces by dogs, or nailed to crosses, or set on fire. And when day declined, they were burned to serve for nocturnal lights. Nero would tie them to stakes alive and dip them in pitch or oil and light them on fire, so he would he would have light in his gardens in the evening while they were alive. Tell me that's not a person who's demon possessed. He was sick. You know, even uh, we see justice being done in our world. And, you know, uh, we still I saw the, the whole thing with Saddam Hussein and the, the noose around his neck. And I tell you what, he was an evil man. He did a lot of things to a lot of people. But there, a little part of me in it, there was a twinge of me that actually felt bad for the guy at 69 years old. So as Christians, we don't we don't want blood sport, you know, but there are some people who, who live on torturing other people. And uh, you know that there's demonic forces at work there. So what are those two effects? And the question is, how do we we all fit into one of those two categories? If you have chosen to follow God at some point because he touched your soul, great. What about those who still haven't? There's still time, sure, but how much time? Only God knows. The Lord could come for us tonight if he wanted to, his people. This is the most important decision of your life. To me, Put it, and, and I did it a few times, and, to, and thank God, the Lord was merciful. I don't know, was it the fifth or sixth time I finally said, you know what, what am I running from? This is, this is real, this is right. But to me, I think of playing the game of Russian roulette. You have a cylinder with so many holes, and you put only one bullet in there. You keep spinning the barrel and clicking it, and nothing happens. The odds are good that it's going to click a, a whole bunch of times. But one of those times, you're going you're to hit the bullet, and it's going to go through your head. And I know that's a little graphic, But to me, when you fool around with your eternal security, and look, I'm not trying to scare anybody, but it's just a fact. Uh, As a a pastor and a police officer, I see people uh, die untimely deaths. You know, death doesn't say we're going to let somebody live to a ripe old age and then take them. People die young. So if you think you have another day of life, you're, you're counting on God for that breath in your lungs. So I'm saying that people say, I have a long life ahead of me. Says who? People's lives are cut short from them every day. Verse 14. It's a little bit of a somber message, but it's part of Scripture, so we're covering it here. 14, it says, Therefore settle in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all of your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. If you look at Peter and John before the Sanhedrin, they were like, wow, where did these guys get this stuff? Oh, they were hanging out with Jesus. That was it. You know, these guys had a, a, a killer testimony, and they couldn't contradict their witness. They knew the scripture. You know, they were led by the Spirit of God. There was no, no opposing these men. Uh, Stephen, the first Christian martyr before the council, when, he was, when they were just about to kill him, and he was speaking, and he was laying a heavy testimony on these people. They, the Bible says that they looked at him, and he had the face of an angel. There was just something good about him. There was something spiritual about this guy. And it says that they couldn't resist his, his testimony. So they ended up stoning him to death. Paul before Festus and Agrippa. You know, this guy, he had no notes. I got notes up here. Paul didn't have any notes. He had chains. And when he went before these dignitaries, he would just open his mouth and speak the word of God and the Holy Spirit would lead him. And they were like, you know, they were like blown away by his testimony. And I got to tell you, when I'm sitting in, I remember one time I was sitting in a place where I was getting my oil change I was talking to somebody about the Lord, and I didn't need any notes. The words just came to me. The scriptures came to me. As long as I was in prayer and saying, Lord, I know you want me to reach this person, it just came out of my mouth. What I said afterwards, I don't know, but it, it had an effect on the guy. But um, you know, even in our lives, what do I say? How do I say it? I find that no matter what the situation is, if you're, if you're agonizing about something to say or you know, the Lord put somebody in your path that you want to share your faith with, The Lord will give you those words if you just, you know, you don't have to say it out loud. But you you know, Lord, what do I do? What do you want me to do here? Boom, it'll just come to you. So the other question is why the persecution? Second Timothy 3:12 tells us that all of all of us that desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's just a fact. It's a fact of life. I want to also have you turn to John 15, starting in verse 18. I want to read a little bit about. What Jesus was talking about regarding this. John 15:18, It says, If the world, Jesus says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So why does the world hate Jesus and why does the world hate his followers? It goes back into the beginning. Our ancestral parents, God gave the creation to them to tend to it. And they rebelled against God and they sinned and it was taken from them. They they relinquished it to Satan. That's why when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, Satan said, I have all these kingdoms of the world and I can give them to you because he has them to give, because he's in control of the world system. That's why the world will always be in opposition to God's word and God's people. And Jesus is saying, if they did it to me, you're bearing my message. They're going to do it to you if you're really bearing my message. So he says, uh, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. Well, Jesus spoke to the world. He gave his word. He gave his testimony. He died on the cross. He rose again. That's a pretty heavy testimony to the world. So he says the world has no excuse, and he also makes this incredible statement: "He who hates me hates my Father also." You, where your where your standing is with God Almighty depends on where your standing is with Jesus Christ. If you, you know, and that's just the way it is. That's just the way God set it up. To get to the Father, you have to get to the Son. John uh, 14 says that. He says, "If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin." But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in the law, their law. They hated me without a cause. And he's referencing the Old Testament, Psalm 69, 4. And then he says, but when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. He speaks about sending the Holy Spirit. And that the Holy Spirit, people say, oh, the Holy Spirit led me to do this. The Holy Spirit led me to do that. The Holy Spirit will always point to Jesus Christ. It will always testify of Christ. I've actually heard some people say, um, ministers, say uh, that they have control over the, Sp- the Holy Spirit. I have the Holy Spirit and I'm going to release him. You can't have control over the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. To me, it reminds me of a cat carrier. You, know, you can't put him in a, in a thing and just release him. He's God. Right? He controls us. We well, don't control him. Uh, chapter 16, four verses. These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues and the churches and your communities and your families. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think he offers God service. It's interesting when the when anyone tries to defame Islam uh, the, with the, the caricatures of Muhammad or what have you in his riots and killing, They say, Allah Akbar, which means God is great. If they kill people who they think they're they're doing the right thing for God, they actually think they're they're doing God's service by killing people, that God is ordaining this. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you, that when the time comes you may remember that I told you of them. And these things... I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. So Jesus is, is going to depart soon at this point in scripture and he's shoring up his disciples and letting them know what to expect. It's not like I didn't tell you guys this is coming. This persecution is coming. And Galatians 16, Paul tells us that let no one trouble me anymore because I bear the body of the marks. I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Paul was whipped, he was stoned, he was beat. This is the person who compiled, God used him to compile half of the New Testament. And he went through so much abuse, this persecution for being a Christian and giving that witness. Now, I want to read something uh, from Voice of the Martyrs. Uh, This man, Pastor Richard Wombrand, has since gone to be with the Lord, and his wife, Sabina. They actually founded VOM in 1967. Very extraordinary people. They were both uh, Eastern European Jews. And uh, they were witness to. They received Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They were uh, Jewish believers. And uh, they lived in Romania. And when the Nazis had come in World War II, uh, there was Nazi control over Romania. And at one point in time, many of their family were killed and sent to the concentration camps. So this pastor was witnessing to uh, a Nazi officer who had a hand in killing his wife's family, uh, Sabina Wombrand's family. And he's witnessing to him, telling him about Jesus Christ. And his wife was sleeping in the next room, and he woke her up. And he said, Sabina, this this officer is here, and I've been telling him about the Lord. And she got up, and she realized who he was, and she just gave him that witness. She She wasn't mad at him. She didn't revile him. And this guy ends up receiving the Lord. Now, when the Nazis left, the communists took over. These people, I tell you, we don't realize how good we have it in this country. They went from the frying pan into the fire. The communists came and did even more uh, atrocities to the Romanian people. And there was a man, Colonel Franco, who was a torturer. That was his job. And he, was the, he would torture people and interrogate them. I want to read to you a little excerpt from this article. It says that Colonel Franco summoned the pastor to an interrogation, uh, Pastor Wombrandt. He found this pastor with scars of torture on his body, who spoke to him about the mercy and love of God. The colonel returned home and sat at the table, desperately holding his head in his hands. Something is wrong with me, he cried to his wife. I am sick. I have never met anyone like this man in my whole life. His wall of hatred had been cracked. This communist torturer now became a Christian, and the pastor ended up baptizing him, and he ended up, the colonel ended up getting arrested and thrown in prison because he became one of the Christians, right? So these people, I tell you, I don't think I'm there yet. <laughs> these people are just remarkable people, but they certainly show what it, it's all about to be a Christian, the love of Christ, that, that bar that Jesus said is so high. And it's just amazing to see people who, who get close to that, you know, in their lives. Okay, so millions of Christians um, around the world, because Christianity is illegal in a lot of countries, uh, these pastors are actually being sent to prison, and they're witnessing to the prisoners Some of the pastors actually have been kicked out of prison or killed because they don't want them witnessing to the prisoners. So the prisoners come out and they're Christians. So it's neat how God's word gets spread around to the world. But the last time I was here, I said that you have to stand for something. Otherwise, you stand for nothing. It's just the way it is. Sometimes you make choices. And when you don't make choices, a lot of times the absence of making a choice is a choice in itself. So you have to stand for something. Otherwise, you stand for nothing. And if we certainly should stand for something that yields eternal consequences. I've, stand for, I've stood for a lot of things in my life. A lot of them were, were dumb things I regret standing for, and I've dug my heels in. Uh, my deputy chief of the police department said to me not too long ago, he goes, Joe, you have to be one of the best arguers for a cause. Now, I don't know if that's a compliment or not, <laughs> but I think it is because he likes me. But a lot of causes come and go. You know, but this one has eternal consequences. He says in the scripture here, do not meditate. Let's go back to Luke. He says, do not meditate beforehand on what you will say or don't obsess about it or don't worry about it. How many of us can relate to worry? Sure, a lot of us. (laughs) I didn't ask for hands, but that's okay. We worry, uh, give too much thought to a lot of things, and a lot of things that we worry about aren't even life-threatening. If you think about it, what do we worry about? Money, uh, with our kids, or this or that. You know, we worry about so many things, but th- this stuff comes and goes, and it's really not even life-threatening. But what is worry? Is it wrong? Well, worry can be a temporary emotion that catches off, you know, catches us off guard. If we go to the doctor and he, he shows us uh, a bad lab result, or test results and and gives us bad news about our health it kind of catches us by surprise we're like oh this isn't good we worry and it can be a natural response to something that's uh, bad news but we regain our footing and we realize who are we in christ and we put it in his hands if we make a practice of constantly not just worrying about something and then realizing all right lord i'm putting it in your hands but if we make a practice of constantly agonizing over something it really is like saying that you don't trust God. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways and he will direct your paths. I would personally rather put my, uh, my life in his hands than put my life in my own hands, right? And in Matthew 6, if you're taking notes, a great portion of scripture, Matthew six twenty five through 34, uh, Jesus speaks about worry in, in some depth there. In verse 16, it says, You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will send some of you to your death. Jesus spoke of families splitting apart because of allegiance, some of them choosing allegiance to God. You saw that in the first century, and you can see it throughout the ages. Uh, in, in World War II, the Nazis actually had camps for teens and children, the Hitler Youth. And they would go to camps and they would brainwash them to say that the Nazi regime was even more important than your parents. And they would send them back home and the, parents would sp- or the, the children would spy on their parents and kind of you know, snitch on them to the, to the regime. And the people would be taken to their deaths. But a lot of pastors said, wait a minute, this whole thing about the, the concentration camps, it's wrong. Unfortunately, a lot of pastors were silent. But a lot of pastors said, wait a minute, this is wrong. This is wrong. The word of God says that this is wrong. And those people were removed and taken to the camps with the Jews. So people will stand and make a stand for God. And if you make a stand for God, don't be surprised who comes and and turns against you because of that. On a lesser scale, uh, you know, you could be generation upon generation of a certain culture or a certain religion or a certain something, and then you become born again. Well, Jesus says in John chapter three that unless you were born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. And then your family members may ask you, well, how could you be born again? What are you doing reading the Bible? Is there something wrong with you? Are you going through a midlife crisis? I mean, your sister could be practicing witchcraft and your brother could be a stamp licker. But, you know, some of you from the 60s. But if you're reading the Bible, people think that there's something wrong with you. You know, what are you doing? Do you need help? And that's just the way it is. it's, It's a spiritual thing. They don't understand what you're doing because... You know they're relying on something different, they're relying on, on earthly things, on temporal things, and you're now directly tuned into God, and they don't understand what you're doing. Don't get radical with the whole God thing, right? Verse 17. Jesus says, "And you will be hated by all for my name's sake." Well, the validity of Christianity was, among all the persecutions, this sect, little sect of Judaism, little sect, not only survived but it thrived under such awful persecution. And, you know, it, it, it has, uh, unfortunately, uh, over, over the years, and Jesus said this, you know, many sects, many cults, many bizarre doctrines would arise out of Christianity, and that has happened. But this little, little band of, of Jewish believers, boom, they just flourished and flourished, and look at how many people now know who Jesus is around the world. So, but what's interesting, too, is uh, in places of persecution... If you go to, if you follow overseas news, if you follow missionaries and they go into some hostile areas and they meet Christians who are there, a lot of them will say, you Americans need some persecution to to get some of that false doctrine out of your country. And it's true. There's a, a, a doctrine that says God wants you to be rich. God wants you to be wealthy. God wants you to always feel great all the time. If you're sick, you don't have enough faith. You're not doing it right. That can't survive in persecuted countries. That can't survive in the Sudan, where churches are are, uh, bombed and people are are mutilated and people are sold into uh, slavery because they're believers. Uh, All they have, they don't have temporal, they don't have riches. All they have is their faith to keep them going. So that doctrine can't survive in persecuted areas, right? So sometimes persecution is actually good to purify the church. And in verse 18, he says, But not a hair of your head shall be lost. Not a hair of your head can be lost apart from God's will or God's notice. He has every hair numbered. That's in Matthew 10, verse 30. Now, the last time I said that, inevitably, every time I do this, one of my brothers who shaves his head will say, Look, I don't have any hair. So for you wise guys, you can translate that, and no follicle will be lost. So some were delivered and some were not, but they didn't die in vain. They gained eternal treasures, and they glorified God. Look at Stephen, the first Christian martyr. didn't look like he lived long. He went right to his uh, execution. James, uh, James was killed by Herod. Uh, Herod struck him down. Paul, Paul did a lot before eventually he was martyred, but he, he, for many years he, he dodged a bullet, so to speak. He escaped uh, death, uh, and, and he wrote half the New Testament, but he eventually died. Peter, Peter's another one. How many times did he get freed from prison or a, a miracle happened to Peter so that he would escape that, uh, that death sentence? And then eventually, towards the end, he lost his life. John, well, John was persecuted, but John, according to scripture, according to uh, even secular history, he died of old age. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't murdered. Then we see in the New Testament, the two witnesses who will come. Uh, I believe it's Revelation chapter 11. Two witnesses will come, and they will do great things for god they won 't be able to be killed, but eventually, after their service is done, they will be martyred and the one hundred and forty four thousand the one hundred and forty four thousand Israelis, after the church is removed, will be will be sealed on their foreheads. Uh, god will seal them first, and then we will see later that you know Satan is the great counterfeiter he 's going to have his mark, the mark on the on the forehead or the right hand. But God already marks his people on the forehead first and seals them and preserves them first. So they're going to be preserved. So you see different people. And again, it's all what are we here for? We're here really to glorify God. We're not here for our own. And we we all think that we're here for our own selves. But we're here to glorify God. So whatever he does to us, whatever vessel he makes out of us, that's his decision to do. Uh, Perfect preservation from one life to the next See, this is the thing. Not one hair will be lost. You know, uh, Nobody will die apart from God's not, uh, witness or knowledge. But what, we con- what are we concerned about when we think about this? Because it's not a comfortable subject. Well, gee, I, I got to die from my faith. Well, some, most of us probably may never have to, but maybe some of us might. I don't know. Uh, I think about transli- transition from one life into the next, maybe the fear of the unknown. Uh, when I had my first surgery, uh, I put it off for many years and I had all these questions. Well, when they put me under, am I going to wake up in the middle of the surgery? Am I going to remember anything? You've got all these stupid ideas and questions about that transition. When they put you under, what's it going to be like? And I tell you, after one or two times, I'm kind of getting to be a pro at it. All right, come on, just give me the juice. You know, put me out. But uh, it's that transition. And after knowing what it's like, it's not so scary anymore. But people are afraid of that transition. And I'm sure that... These people, when they went to their death, uh, history records that a lot of them were singing and praising God. God gave them a supernatural power to, to have uh, joy in the midst of this uh, persecution. And when they went from one life into the next, it probably was like a split second. It's like walking from one room into another, right? But we, we uh, fear that transition. People fear that transition. But if you're in Christ, you can have that assurance that you will be with the Lord and he'll take care of you for eternity. And the question is, if you don't have that assurance, do you want that assurance? Do you want that assurance? The English word, a little uh, terminology here, the English word martyr comes from the Greek word martus, which originally meant a witness or a testimony. That's what martus meant. Now, it became, in the English, because of so much persecution, because of that word martyr, being associated with Christians being persecuted, if you look it up in the dictionary today, it's synonymous with persecution and someone pretty much dying for their faith. So that's how much martyrdom happened in the early church. Now, another angle about not losing uh, a hair on your head was uh, Jesus gave instructions in the next few verses about fleeing Jerusalem when the people saw a certain sign. And the people who followed Jesus' words were actually preserved completely. They fled Jerusalem, And not a hair on their head was harmed. But the people who stayed and thought that they could take the Romans ended up losing uh, a lot of lives. A million people were killed and 100,000 were sold into slavery. So, verse 19, he says, In your patience possess your souls. Now, patience, the patience to endure. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit. There's nine fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, uh, long-suffering or patience, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness and self-control now patience is probably if we i'm going to raise my hand the other stuff you know i i I can hang with a lot of that stuff but the whole patience thing is difficult and i think most of us especially in our society uh, i i'm even under pressure to get a certain time frame this message because people have a lot to do in their lives you know Uh, my friends from nigeria tell me that these services last sometimes two to three hours And people just praise the Lord. In China, if they go to the underground church, they walk half a day to the church and they spend uh, most of that day praising hours and then they come back home. So they're long services. But I think patience is difficult for us, especially in our culture. But he says patience to endure here. And the chapter wraps up with patience. Patience is the ultimate expression of trusting God when things don't seem to be going well, as opposed to panic. Oh, no, what do I do? Right? Patience, the ability to say, okay, the situation looks bad. I I could see all these things in front of me, but you know what? Let me trust God and let me see what the Lord's going to do. That's what patience is all about. I think about Acts 12 when Peter was in prison. Peter was in prison, you know, chained. This was, if you look at Acts chapter 12, right before that, Herod is murdered. I'm sorry, James is murdered by Herod, right? So no doubt Peter knew about this, knew about Stephen, and he's chained between two guards and he's in prison. Most likely thinking, tomorrow's the last day for me. I'm going to lose my life. When the angel came to free Peter from prison, Peter was sleeping. So much so, he's probably snoring up a storm, because the angel had to strike him on the side and say, Peter, wake up. Come on, we've got to get out of here. You know, God's got work for you to do. So Peter wasn't panicking. He wasn't pacing the floor, tossing and turning and waking up the guards. Peter was sleeping peacefully. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? A lot, there's a lot in that little portion of Scripture. And starting with verse 20, Jesus says, When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those in Judea flee to the mountains, let those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant, and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. In Luke 19, he speaks about things that are going to happen in Jerusalem also. And now he goes into a little bit more detail. But in Luke 19, he speaks about more of the the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem. And we covered the historical aspect of that. And here we see more of the personal hardships of the inhabitants of Jerusalem and in verse 20 he says you're going to see a sign when the armies of Rome surround and I talked about it the last time they actually literally four legions they surrounded the whole city built their own embankment to stop people from getting out and supplies from going in and Jesus said when well, you, you know they it took them time it took them a while to actually surround the city and start building up their their embankment and he said when you see the armies of Rome surround that's your sign get out of there Many stayed and they thought they could win. As a matter of fact, in the beginning, it looked like the zealots were doing very well, according to historians. But the the tables turned and they ended up losing, obviously. But the believers who uh, read Jesus' prophecy and understood it survived it in A.D. 70. There was also another revolt in A.D. 132 through 135, which was the Bar-Kachba revolt. It's all historical fact. And uh, the same thing, uh, actually a man rose up claiming to be the Messiah and they tried again to overthrow Rome and it didn't work and those people were slaughtered too. But he was a false Messiah who rose up, Bar Kokhba, and he tried to get all these people to do these things. But the Christians said, no way, we're not not taking part of this. Our Messiah rose from the dead. This guy didn't. We're going to stick with what Jesus had to say. And then the second thing in verse 21, he says, flee. In Isaiah 16, flee. Get get out of there. Get get out of Judea. Uh, Jordan... Uh, we'll, and the rock city of Petra will, will do the receiving in, in the second portion of this fulfillment of scripture. The first scripture uh, portion was fulfilled in AD 70. The second one is actually two fulfillments here, is in the future when the Antichrist persecutes Israel and the, you know, these things start to happen again and the people are to flee, uh, to flee and get away from him. I want to read Matthew 24. There's just a few verses here. He goes into a little bit more detail, 15 through 16, or 15 through 20. He says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those with nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Now, this, people say, well, Titus fulfilled uh, the abomination of desolation and that they trampled over the Holy of Holies when they destroyed the temple. But it's actually going to be fulfilled in greater detail in the future. And I'm going to turn to Daniel 9, 26 to read a little bit more of that. Well, starting with verse 24. Uh, We see that Daniel was advised by the angel that 70 weeks are determined or 490 years are determined for the nation of Israel for the following to happen for your to finish the transgression to make an end of sins to make reconciliation for iniquity to bring in everlasting righteousness to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place now we know that that hasn't happened yet obviously. Uh, There's a lot of these things that haven't been fulfilled. And he speaks about starting with the decree to send the Jews back from the Persian domination to rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah. There would be 483 years, uh, which was completely fulfilled. And then he says, he says uh, in verse 25, Know therefore and understand from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Just multiply that by seven. Okay, because each week is actually a seven-year period. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. So, and then it says, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Now, after those years are up, and the Messiah comes on the scene, which was calculated to the day of the triumphal entry that Jesus presented himself to be the Messiah, he was cut off after that time. He was killed, but not for himself. He wasn't killed because of anything he did. He was killed. He died for the sins of the people. And it says, And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be with a flood till the end of the war desolations are determined. So it'll be, at the end of it will be the prince, of the, of the, who, the prince who is to come, the prince of the Antichrist. John tells us that there's not just one Antichrist. Many people will fulfill that position of Antichrist. So the Roman, the, the paganism, the, the evil, the anti-Semitism was one, one form of that. But you see, when you look at prophecy, prophecy morphs a lot of times. You see a, a present fulfillment and a future fulfillment. And it can be a little confusing, but there's two fulfillments here. Okay, the end shall be with a flood. The temple was destroyed. The people were, were dispersed into all different nations, okay? Now, verse 27 Now this goes into a future fulfillment because it didn't happen in A.D. 70. Verse 27 says this, Then he shall confirm a covenant with Israel, or with many, for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And what that means is the 69 weeks were fulfilled up to the point that the Messiah came, the Messiah was cut off. The clock stopped ticking because the age of the Gentiles kind of came in at that point. Now that one last week, that seven-year period is left, now, I don't want this to be too confusing, but I do want to maybe be a little bit repetitive. Next Sunday, I, I ordered these these little timelines that I'm going to hand out to everybody in the beginning, so it makes more sense to you. You can see the timeline according to Scripture and what's going to happen in the future. What's going to happen is the uh, temple will be rebuilt. The Bible's clear about that. Revelation speaks about. The angel tells John to rise and measure the temple. So the temple will. You look at it now. At Jerusalem. It doesn't exist, but it will be rebuilt. The Bible says. What's going to happen is the Antichrist will come, okay, after the church is raptured, and then that seven-year period will start again, that last week of the Jewish people. And after that last week, all these things in in verse 24 will be fulfilled. Everything will be made right. But in the middle of that seven-year period, in the beginning, the Antichrist will make a covenant with with Israel and say, listen, we're going to work out a deal. I know the Dome of the Rock is there, but we're going to get you guys. We're going to get you to build your temple. I mean, this is what I believe and the temple's gonna be rebuilt. And these people are gonna hail this guy as the Messiah. In the middle of one week, in the middle of that seven year period, after the three and a half years, the Antichrist will break that covenant and he'll, he'll dupe the Jewish people and then he'll, he'll, he'll attack them, right? Uh, in the middle of that week, he's gonna set himself up to be, the, to be God. He's gonna to wanna to be worshiped in the temple and the Jewish people are gonna realize, man, this is not good, we've been duped, okay? So this is what's gonna happen. He'll bring an end to sacrifice and offering. So, what happens is in the future with the temple, they have the altar and they actually resume the animal sacrifices, right? He's going to bring an end to that and he's going to set himself up to be God. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes des- desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. And Jesus kind of puts different scriptures together and he says, when you see the abomination of desolation appear in the temple, you know, in the most holy place, you need to flee, you need to run. So, Again, next week we're going to have all those little timelines and you're going to look at it and say, okay, that makes sense because it's kind of hard to follow, but this puts all the scriptures in in a good order and then you can follow it kind of chronologically. All right. And in verse 22, he says to them, but these are the days of vengeance. The Roman fury and the rise of anti-Semitism will be unleashed on the Jewish people uh, at this point in time. Okay, in verse 24, he says that, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led away captive into all nations and Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, this happened, this whole thing with um, the times of the Gentiles, right? And the trampling of the Gentiles. It seems to, and uh, there's a lot of good Bible teachers who disagree on this. There's going to be some things in prophecy that we can speculate according to scripture, but only God knows. So we can have fun and play with some of this stuff and get an idea, but I don't get too dogmatic on any of this uh, or, you know, some of this stuff. Starting in 586 B.C. was the first time that the temple was trampled on by Gentiles. The Babylonians came and they, uh, they sieged Jerusalem and they broke through the walls. And they, you know, the same thing, they destroyed the temple and laid the city in ruins. Okay. Um, the temple was rebuilt under the Persian domination. And again, in AD 70, the Romans did it this time. Same thing, siege, broke through the walls, destroyed the temple, laid the city in ruin. Okay, so you, get, you see this trampling in of the Gentiles. Some people say, well, in 1967, the, the trampling of the Gentiles has been fulfilled. Well, that's, I wouldn't say that completely. I mean, they did regain biblical Jerusalem, but there's no temple and there's still a small portion of Jerusalem that they don't have control over. So that's, that's up to dispute. Um, Revelation 11, it says that uh, with, the, with the temple being rebuilt, it says that the, for 42 months, okay, for 42 months, the, the, it'll be trod on by the Gentiles again if you look at Revelation 11. 42 months turns out to be three and a half years, which coincides perfect with the breaking of the covenant in the middle of that seven-year period by the Antichrist and that last 42 months or three and a half years of the time of tribulation or great tribulation, Okay. And, and, again, that's another thing. People say, tribulation, great tribulation. That seven-year period is really the time of of the Jews to take center stage again because the church is removed. So the Jews take center stage, right, Israel. And uh, it does appear that in the middle of that week, in the three-and-a-half-year mark, that's when everything starts to go bad, okay? And then one last point I want to make here before we wrap it up is, this is a little tough, you know, to, to kind of put it all in a, in a perfect order. I'm doing the best I can here. The times of the Gentiles seem to overlap in, in terms of the church and worship because what we see is that Israel, in a, in a good portion, disbelieved the Messiah. They, they, um, there was disbelief, and the Gentiles were kind of grafted into, into that uh, olive branch. And I'm going to read one scripture on that, Romans 11:25. 25. It's one verse. Actually, uh, going up a little further in Romans 11:17, uh Paul says, If some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them become a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Paul's speaking to Gentiles largely, and he's saying that, uh, the, the, the olive tree is, you know, God's olive tree is the nation of Israel. And he said that uh, part of the wild olive tree, the Gentiles, when they were brought into faith, were grafted into that tree. Okay. And he's saying that as Gentiles, and, and this, this kind of goes against the whole replacement theology thing. Don't be anti-Semitic. Don't boast against the Jews. They're our brethren. We're supposed to love them. We're supposed to woo them to Christ. We're supposed to show them the love of Christ because God says eventually at some point in time, it's only for a time of Israel's disbelief. Israel will come back to faith in the Messiah and we'll all be brothers. So, you know, be careful of that. And in verse 25, Paul says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. That hardening in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So once the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, you know, the, Israel takes center stage, and then there's that brotherhood of us together at the end. Jesus said to his disciples, he says, I have other sheep that I have to tend to. He spoke to the Jews, you're my sheep, but there's other sheep, the Gentiles. And in the end, we're all going to be together as one big flock under, under God, right? So it's all going to happen and, and go together. So um, going back to the, uh, the times of the Gentiles, I think that there's a temporal, my opinion is that there's a temporal and a spiritual connotation to this. Because temporally, he speaks about the trampling by the Gentiles. Now, this has a negative connotation. I don't think this is a good connotation. You know, the Romans came in, they, they did awful things to, to the Jewish people and they trampled over the city and the, and the most holy place and all that. So, temp- there's a temporal and a spiritual aspect. Temporally, when this is fulfilled... Uh, the times of the Gentiles is over, the Jews will have, a, Israel will have a restorative period. If you look in Isaiah 60 through Isaiah 62, those three chapters, there's a restoration period of Israel that hasn't happened yet. There seems to be a false start with the rebuilding of the temple in, in the times of Revelation, but of course it is a false start. It's a ruse to trick them. Uh, but you know, when all this stuff is fulfilled, they will have a restorative period. Spiritually now, when this is fulfilled, Israel will recognize her Messiah. Uh, Zechariah 12.10 speaks about the nation at large that looks at their Messiah and mourns him as one mourns a firstborn son. They mourn him, the one that that they pierced. Uh, This seems to have a start with the 144,000. God sends his Israeli uh, witnesses to to service. He sends them out and also the two witnesses. But the return of Christ and the national receiving of their Messiah is Zechariah 12:10. So you see some overlap. And again, next week, um, it's sort of going to be like a door prize. You'll get those little, those little timelines and it'll, it'll kind of make sense. All the scriptures and, and you know, the, the chronology will make sense and kind of come together. But going into the new year, you know, let's bring this all back to reality, right? Going into the new year, if we're in Christ... We look forward to the possibility in 07 and i'm not setting dates could be 08 could be 09 who knows but every year we look forward to the possibility that jesus returns for his people he comes back for us we're united with him and things start going on the right track from there it's, it's good uh, and we should look forward to that every year but what about the new year's resolutions you know people it's like the, the top ones are what quit smoking go on a diet lose 10 pounds go back to the gym right People in the uh, the gym field know that the first uh, January and February are like the best months. Everybody wants to start up with gym memberships. And by March and April, nobody comes to the gym anymore. But how long does that stuff last? You know, it doesn't last very long, obviously. We just covered and we'll be covering next week heavy prophetical teachings and looking forward to the possibility that Jesus says of his return at any time. So the best New Year's resolution that we could really make to ourselves is that the one that yields eternal rewards, seeking the Lord while He may be found jeremiah 29:13 seeking the Lord, reading his word, and having a closer walk with him let's pray. They're like the best months every.